I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Mariella Frostrup, and this is Books to Live By, the podcast that asks its guests to pick a handful of titles from a lifetime of reading to help us learn more about the books that have shaped them. This time, I'm delighted to be joined by one of our most celebrated contemporary novelists, poets, and critics, Colin Tobin. Born in Enniscorthy in 1955, he's the author of novels including The Master, Brooklyn, The Testament of Mary, and Nora Webster. He's the recipient of numerous literary awards and has been nominated multiple times for the Booker Prize. I'm not sure if you'll thank me for reminding him of that. <laughs> as well as his novels, uh, Colin Tobin has published collections of stories and many works of nonfiction. This year, he became the laureate for Irish fiction and a guest at the feast, a new collection of essays, which ranged from personal memoir to writing on religion, literature and politics, is out now. Uh, Colin Tobin, welcome to Books to Live By. Thank you very much, Maya. Well, I'm really, really happy to have you here. And of course, your reading list has instantly become mine because who wouldn't want to read the books uh, that have in some way or other influenced you along the way? But I was wondering, just reading this fantastic uh, new book of essays, how much writing those essays gives you clues as to what you've written about in, in your own life? Like, How much does the, the factual inform the fiction for you? Oh, I think it's it's one way of keeping off the street. In other words, that if you're, if you're writing essays, you're re- usually writing them for a deadline, which means that all the things you could do, you can't do because you must finish this piece. And of course, because some of those pieces are, are between five and 10,000 words, you really don't know what, if you knew what you thought beforehand, I don't know what sort of essay you would write. But so you, so you are thinking on your feet. You're trying to work out that the last paragraph is not quite true. And instead of cutting it, you just begin to begin to redefine it or, or, or re-examine it. So you're constantly involved in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, I suppose, a process. And that process is actually quite close to the fictional process in that, you know, I was on a big, going for a big walk yesterday and a sudden thing came to me that hadn't occurred to me before about a new chapter of the novel I'm working on. And, and that, that in a way, that method of thinking where something you weren't didn't plan, something that wasn't on your mind arrives and fits in perfectly. And there's a certain satisfaction in that, and it happens in essays. It must happen in essays, because if you're not arguing with yourself, then there's no tension in the piece. There's no drama in the piece. So, for example, in the essay of Marilyn Robinson, I admire her enormously. And then I begin to think, and I begin to look at some of her essays, and I begin to look at the way she's presenting God in her essays. And she's talking about how much God loves the world. And I think that sounds like a bad sermon Enniscorthy circa 1966 by a not very smart priest. You know, we kind of tell how much God loves the world. So there are times when she moves into religious sugar, religious sugary speech. And there are other times when she's startlingly fresh and intelligent. But my job is, you know, I'm not here to praise her. I'm here to have a dialogue with her. I mean, obviously, it's a dialogue where I'm reading with her in print. But nonetheless, it is, it is um, I suppose, it's never settled. You, you know, there's no argument you can make ever for me that's settled. 
that there's always one more thing you need to say that's often the opposite to the previous thing. And a novel works like that too, which you think, what, what is the first thought I had on this character? And then you must think that thought is a cliche. That thought is lazy. I must have the second thought. And so you're always working like that. And also, I would argue that the themes of many of these essays are themes that you've explored and continue to go back to, like a sort of meditation constantly. Uh, you know, there's a, an essay about your childhood in, in Ennis Corthy. There's the essay about um, Marilyn Robinson, which is really uh, about how uh, writers tackle religion uh, in their novels. I mean, almost every theme that's appeared in a book of yours is present in this book of essays. Does that strike you as... I was going to use the word normal, but I don't mean normal. Does that strike you as a sort of no-brainer to an extent? Or... Uh, uh, yeah. No, you go ahead, because I think you've got the answer oh, oh. already. You don't need to hear <laughs> uh, my question. <laughs> uh, I think there's always a debate going on between the fox and the hedgehog. You know, Isaiah Berlin's distinction. Um, a fox must know many small things, and a hedgehog must need to know one big thing. And I think as a novelist, you really find in the end that you have two or three things you want to write about over and over and over. Family, town, religion, sexuality, not, not much else, really. Um, and individuals in a state of isolation. But then when you're working, you need a thousand details. I mean, a, a novel is a thousand details. You need each one of them, like the fox moving through the landscape, smelling and checking and stopping. But the but behind the fox comes the hedgehog. And the hedgehog, as you say, in this book of essays, there, I don't have any more themes. I, in a way, I'm glad I don't because I've had enough trouble from the ones I have. <laughs> Um, you, you started out uh, as a journalist and you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation that thing about a deadline, but you strike me as someone who really doesn't need a deadline at all. And in, in many ways, that's that's one of the things that separates uh, journalists from authors. You know, I can only write if I know it's got to be handed in by 10 o'clock and I can probably only start writing it at eight o'clock, you know. And I wonder, like, for you, writing seems to be something that you just go into a sort of reverie with and and... Can you really write 20,000 words in a day? 20,000? No, yeah, I read that somewhere. No, 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 it was two. No, 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 it was 2,000. No, honestly, honestly, was... now. <laughs> uh, no, no, 2,000, but that would be very unusual, would be 2,000. No, no, you, no, no, I think even Henry James, when he was working really fast, no one, no one can do 20,000 words in a day. But I consider myself to be as lazy as sin. And deadlines are important. And if there are two or three editors listening to this conversation, they would say he is a non-deliverer. He has a piece that was due like in, in the middle of the summer. And I got I got an email from one of them the other day saying, any chance of it by Christmas? And uh, I had to write back and say, no, I'm still working. And so, I, yeah, no, I, I, deadlines are really important, but I'm always in a state of guilt and shame over missing them. But surely that's just uh, being brought up a Catholic. No, I think it's a. <laughs> I think Protestants feel guilt and shame, surely, and not to the same extent. <laughs> Look at history. I suppose. I suppose you're right. But there is certainly something about about um, a, a Catholic upbringing that'll always make you feel like you haven't quite done what you're meant to have done. You know, so the idea of you as a slacker is hilarious to me. Possibly um, more relevant to to your editors and more pertinent, and they might notice it. But I think to the outside world, you would seem like a person who's constantly engaged in the act of writing, in the art of writing, and 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 actually in in your leisure, don't stray very far from it. 
uh, as well, because you're an, uh, you know, an intense reader. I wondered how difficult it had been for you uh, to choose just five titles. Ah, yeah, I could have gone on. I mean, we could go on for days. Speaking of 20,000 words, we could do 20 hours <laughs> where we could go through, yeah, many, many other books. It, it was, this, this, is, this, this is just a sample. But how hard to hone it down? And, and, and how did you interpret the brief of, of, of books to live by? Oh, I think I picked five books that I thought that anyone should read and that people would get pleasure from. And some of them are part of the canon. But, you know, you never know anymore because you feel someone like Henry James, people say, oh, those long sentences. Oh, those posh characters. Oh, all those people crossing the Atlantic. You know, and you go, no, no, hold on, hold on a minute. Just, just there, there is something else to be said about Henry James. And I think, um, I think with identity politics now, it's become really difficult to say to someone, you are entitled to read James Baldwin. Not only that, but, but he will speak to you in various ways, even if you don't come from Harlem and don't come from an African-American religious background, that there are ways in which, uh, there, there are so many ways in which books speak across centuries and speak across continents and they speak across identities. And I think this is an absolutely essential aspect of our reading now, that I can read a book by a woman and I can get even perhaps, you know, because it's speaking to me of difference, of otherness, of things I don't actually know, and then making them seem real, familiar and true, that that might be actually quite an important encounter between myself, for example, and someone like Marilyn Robinson, with whom I would have nothing ostensibly in common. So that, yeah, that's the whole point in a way of fiction is that um, the, there are no borders, there are no identities, there are the sentences and somehow or other some of them with their rhythms will end up speaking to you of something that, sh- that should not automatically be close to you. We're going to go on to talk about your first choice in a moment, which uh, is the portrait of a lady by Henry James. But but you mentioned, you know, you can be reading a book about a woman. And one of the things that 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 you're extraordinarily gifted at, if I might say this as a woman, is interpreting a, a woman's way of thinking, a woman's way of being. And I think that's a, a very striking thing for a male writer to be able to do. Why do you think it is that you're so good at interpreting women and depicting women? Well, I was brought up by women. You know, in other words, that it isn't just I had a mother, but my two nearest siblings were girls. My mother had two sisters who were in the house all the time. And my father had a sister who never married, was in the house all the time. So that I'm in a house and there are women talking. And no matter what they're talking about, it's really interesting. I go downstairs and the men are being grumpy and they're watching television and they're watching a sports match, a curling match or something, a football. And they're being really, really dull. And everything they're saying is boring. Like that first goal was a very good goal. I just go, this is the most tedious thing I've ever been in. And you're a little boy, you're five years old. And you go back upstairs to hear that the women are talking about something like Auntie Harriet almost bought a coat in Dublin. It was green, but the buttons, there was something wrong about it, but she isn't sure. Maybe it was a mistake. The price was good. I said, well, what was the price? And then she won't tell them the price. And oh, well, well we'd have to know. I mean, I mean, was it that? Oh, oh and what shop? And, oh, there was a woman in the shop and she was slightly rude when she fitted it on. And could go on. And even though what I'm telling you sounds really tedious, as well in the way they would talk the animation the amount of laughter the amount of worry over the coat and well in the winter you do need a coat in the winter and that old coat of yours my mother would be very good at saying to her sisters that old coat of yours really is finished so they could give it to her and uh, so she could get <laughs> you know free clothes from them by insulting what they own and so all of this would be going on and so um 
I mean, that's just one example of ways in which you end up watching, listening and picking up things and it sort of soaks into your consciousness and ends up 40, 50 years later in a novel. You had given me a wonderful segue into Henry James, which I've now abandoned because I asked you the question about women, but it is your first choice, The Portrait of, of a Lady by Henry James, and, and you describe it as the first book which had a significant impact on you. When did you first read it, and what was the significant impact? It was the summer um, of, I think, 1973, so I would have been 18, and I picked it up for no reason. I just, just the book was there. It was uh, I was on summer holidays, and... I thought it was a book about style, about different styles. So that Isabel Archer, she's discovered by her aunt who lives in Florence. She's in Albany in upstate New York. And she really is, a, you know, she really is a young lady who is very good at taking in impressions and wanting to have experience. She's almost engaged to a young man, but she decides to go to Europe with her aunt. And now we're going to watch as the different ways. For example, one night she's with Isabella's with her cousin and her cousin's friend. And her aunt says, well, I have to go to bed and you have to come with me. You cannot stay up late in England with two young men. What is my cousin? No, in England, you cannot do this. So we're talking about those sort of styles, different systems, whereby a young woman frees herself in her imagination from various constraints and then opens herself to the world of Europe, to the world of sensation, to, I suppose, a sense of an old world that brings in with it a sort of new sensations. What you don't realise as you're reading the novel is what's coming. And that's the brilliance of the novel, where you think you're reading about how a young woman is discovering your Europe. You're, oh, she's going to go to Florence next. What church will she go to? What? How will she take, how will she soak in the light? And you realise slowly, no, it's not about style. It's actually about moral questions. It's about treachery. And you and because you don't see the treachery coming, you realise she doesn't either. Both of you are sort of innocent as you read the book. It's a very strange experience to know as little as the protagonist. You don't see the figures that are, for example, the figure of Madame Merle. You see her just as an older woman who knows a great deal about the world. James is very good on worldliness. You know, she knows what dress to wear. She knows to be on time for dinner. She knows, she says, for example, when you're staying with someone, it's very important never to get sick. <laughs> as though getting sick were sort of style decision, like what sort of dress you would wear. And um, and there are many good jokes of that sort in the book. I mean, there's a very late later on in the book, um, her aunt asks her, where is Madame Merle? And Isabel says, she's gone to America. And, and her aunt says, oh, she must have done something very wrong. <laughs> and, uh, but what you realise slowly is that this, this is really is about two people who have run out of money and who will do anything to get some, including behaving in the most treacherous, slow, cruel way. And you watch Isabel moving from light into dark, from freedom into a cage. And it's very dramatic. Part of the reason it's dramatic is that most of the book is told through Isabel's eyes. You see everything. So you begin to notice the world as she does. Your, your memories become hers. Your desires become hers. So that, so that as the reader, you are so integrated into the way she is feeling and thinking, that when her innocence is, 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 as it were, sort of destroyed, you too have that feeling on the next page. I didn't see this coming. She didn't see us coming. She didn't see it coming either. We're both in this together. 
You're talking to me now about this book with the benefit of decades, uh, a learned man, a multiple booker nominee, dare I say it again. I wonder what it was that spoke to you at 18, though, uh, the young column, because I, I suppose in many ways it's a book about freedom, about autonomy. D do you remember instinctively what, what you responded to first time around? Yes, I think I do. I, I'm from a small town, a population of about 6,000, which means that everybody doesn't just know everybody, but they know about people. It's very hard to have a real secret in this town. In other words, if you had been married previously, everyone would know. Everyone would know who your previous girlfriends were. That sort of thing is known. So you cannot reinvent yourself or disguise yourself. I think the same was true at university, where you, you know people, we were all from more or less the same sort of backgrounds. But this, the idea that these two people who are Gilbert Osmond in the novel and Madame Merle actually have a secret that nobody seems to know, that, that something happened in their lives that they have disguised and covered over, but will make all the difference at the end of the book. In other words, I was amazed at the idea that that sort of secrecy could be held and what it would do. And later on, I discovered in Spain, when I went to Spain, that there were people, even people working with me, who had had earlier lives that they didn't talk about much. In fact, there was someone who was working with me who had been in prison. I had no idea. One night someone told me. I was amazed in the same way as Portrait of a Lady. He was what? He was in prison. I mean, I was 22 years old. And the idea that someone had served a five-year prison sentence for, you know, for, for um, stealing money, basically. You know, I thought... What an extraordinary idea. That man who I've been, had dinner with, who I've seen, who I've been in his company, that part of him was simply kept away. But in my life, up when I read the book, 18, that was never a concept that somebody could have a secret like that. I found that for some reason absolutely thrilling. It, it may have had to do with my own homosexuality, which was a secret for many people. But I think that would be too reductive and too easy to say. It was more the idea that there are layers in the self and you can peel the layers back and you might get just what you expect or you might get something very dark and strange. I suppose I, that, I found that idea new. I found it thrilling and it was dramatized in a way which was, which was, I thought it was slow. And when you realized what was really happening in the book, you simply have to put the book down for a moment and think this isn't possible that she didn't realize all that business of realize, no, find out, not know. All those things are so crucial in the book. It was the excitement of a world that was outside mine and a set of knowledge and sets of disguises and concealments that were new concepts to me. It brought me out into a world I didn't know. You mentioned uh, the more obvious connection growing up uh, a gay in Enniscorthy in a small Irish town at a time when that would have been a very difficult thing in a way to to carry with you and 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 you've said that uh, growing up gay in Ireland you've been fascinated you, you've always been fascinated by figures who've, who've lived in the in the shadows erotically is that also something that 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 you draw out of this book by Henry James because you know to be a, a woman at that at that point in time it would have been very a very similar experience sadly yes I think that the uh, but but also I think the whole idea of us people who were around in the 70s and in, in the, the 80s we wanted experience that they sometimes there were experiences certainly in Ireland our parents hadn't had 
the experience of, of living easily in a foreign country, just arriving because you wanted to, not you're emigrating for economic reasons. But I was going to Spain just to see life. And I think a lot of us in that in that generation wanted that experience from life. And we watched Isabel Archer in Portrait of a Lady. That is precisely what she wanted. She wanted to live more sensuously and she wanted to gather up sensations and 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 hoard them almost, but 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 also, I suppose, savor them. And, and I suppose that idea of wanting one more thing from life than life in a provincial town or even in a provincial university is going to give you, wanting something else is really fundamentally part of that book. And it's another part of the excitement. She is a new sort of person in that an English woman uh, of the equivalent English woman will want to marry for money and for and, and will want to improve her circumstances in marriage. And that has been the marriage plot of the English novel for so long. James wants Isabel to want something else, a sort of yearning for something that she cannot name that might indeed be a sort of spiritual union some some sense of connection she wants with a man in marriage that will give her something spiritual, which is why it's so strange early on in the book. She turns down Lord Warburton, who's tremendously rich, who's handsome, who's decent, who's, you know, who's a sort of liberal lord. And then her mother, her aunt, fails to wonder, why did you turn him down? This is what a young woman wants, is a lord. And James, by letting her turn him down, makes it seem oddly perverse in one way but he never he's never he's never he never settles for one thing she's oddly perverse but also a sort of richness in her spirit that doesn't just want to marry for rank she wants one more thing and of course it's that desire for something that she can't quite pinpoint her name that is going to give the novel its plot and going to cause her such pain by the end of the book well, that's the thing. He wants her to want something else. But um, as you've highlighted, you know, Isabel Archer, she starts out full of ambition and desire and, 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 and a, a, you know, a, a longing for something that she, as you say, can't quite name. But, but she ends up disillusioned and, um, and empty handed in a way. And, and, and th- there have been lots of sort of academic writing about portrait of an artist as a as a sort of companion to Henry James' own life. And I wondered how much you'd drawn on it when you wrote your book about Henry James, the master. Oh, yes. I think the whole idea of finding someone in Albany, especially Albany, which was his grandmother's house. I mean, I mean that's where she's found. He's using a real house and then bringing her to the very places that he loved most, which was Florence, Rome and also England. I suppose there was that sense also of you know, he wrote very, he, he, well, he wrote very well about women, but there's also a sense that he is punishing her, that there is that, that there is a sense of, oh, this woman who was so open hearted and so big in her ambitions. Look how look how narrow the cage will be and look how she will function within that. And so, so yes, there, 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 there is a sort of problem, but it's a problem in, in so many novels in the 19th century that, that, that if someone is ready for life, that life will get them. But it isn't as though the novel would show, oh, how much life then will 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 add to their general sense of well-being. The, the novel doesn't deal with well-being, except as something to undermine or darken. 
But don't you think that it's particularly true of female characters? You know, you just look at Madame Bovary, look at the portrait of a lady. I mean, it's sort of like 1950s movies about female heroines where, you know, if you were any way different or tried, got above yourself, wanted anything more, then in the end, the world would put you back in your place. And that seems to me to be the underlying theme to so many of those 19th century novels, which I think is why I don't really get on with them particularly well. I mean, Henry James was acutely conscious of what George Eliot was doing in the novel. So Dorothea in Middlemarch, for example, watch Dorothea. She has the same sort of sense. I want something richer from life than a mere marriage to someone rich will give me. So she marries Casabon, who's a dry old scholar, and she becomes immensely unhappy. George Eliot, of course, will then later on in the book, give her a new life, will kill off Casabon, which James won't do with Osmond. Osmond, I mean, the first thing you want to do with Osmond is drown him, you know, which which happens with Grandcourt in, in Daniel Deronda, George Eliot's novel. But James just lets the thing go on. And obviously he won't give in to easy plotting of killing his character so that someone else can be freed. He wants in slow time to show what the cage is like for Isabel and how she handles that. It may be different by the end of the novel, but you're never sure because he leaves the end of the novel open end. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Your uh, next choice is Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. And, and, and speaking of cages and women finding themselves uh, within them, I mean, this is in many ways a, a, another excellent example, though it is a, a novel that's often, I think, misrepresented. Uh, you've described it as the book that inspired your career, which actually took me by surprise. In, in what way? In the way that Fanny Price in Mansfield Park is underestimated by everybody. Now, if you begin with a character like her, who's living in the shadows, she's moved from her mother's house, her mother's not rich, to her aunt's house, her aunt is rich, and, but, but she's sort of nobody. Now, I think when you're writing fiction, that idea of having a character that you build from scratch, that doesn't automatically have sort of luck coming their way or, or, or isn't glamorous, but every single thing that happens, she notices. And... The, what the novel is about is, is the registration of her noticing. And every time she, she's, you can see that she's falling in love with one of her cousins. You can watch how much he ignores her or forgets about her. You can watch how this registers on her consciousness, first as hurt, 
but then it becomes a sort of stubborn strength in her. So her feet all around her are flimsy feelings, people having quick feelings. Hers are not quick. Hers are deep. And I, I think if you're working in fiction, the, the figure of Fanny Price is, is immensely interesting. I think much more than some of the other figures um, in novels like Pride and Prejudice or Persuasion. I suppose you're saying in every scene in my novel, I need my character to notice and register. I need them to move from the shadows, not into light, but into some sort of states of recognition and states of feeling that become more pure than the ones around them. So, so in that sense, the novel has been really, really helpful to me in saying you can get any character at all, the least interesting person alive, and you can actually start working with them almost as a coach might. You know, to say, I can actually move you, as J Jane Austen did, from being the least interesting cousin, the person that nobody wants to know about. People are always sort of pushing out of the way to becoming the very centre by simply adding colour, grey, dark blue, a little bit of green, in the same way Cezanne will make a tree. You can make a character by just slow, 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 detail, detail, detail. And you've talked about her sort of emerging from the book uh, exactly as you you just have you know like a like a character in a painting like a person in a painting. But one of the other things that's striking about this book is how little Jane Austen, well, in fact, not at all, uses any sort of backstory to fill in those spaces. And I know, I know, you've got a terrible aversion to the flashback. <laughs> Is that another thing that you picked out from this novel or picked up from this novel? Yes, um, I think that in Jane Austen, you really notice it, that she doesn't take you back to how the parents got married or she doesn't use the pluperfect. He had been. She gives you a sense of, I suppose, a full sense of life by working on the, at the present moment with immense care and sort of working with the texture of each thought she's having or, or each each moment. So, yeah, you don't go back. But I think what, what connects the two books, interestingly, is the figure of the aunt. In these novels of the 19th century, there, people are bad with mothers, but they love an aunt who Mrs. Touchett comes to America, just takes Isabel to England. So that idea of the aunt, the aunt, of course, there are two aunts in Mansfield Park, one of whom really just has no time at all um, for Fanny Price and the other has no time at all for anyone. She just lies on the sofa in a state of enormous indolence, letting the world happen around her. But it is be it, from being moved from her own house, Fanny Price, to her aunt's house that causes the drama to occur in the book, a sort of semi-orphanhood. And that's precisely what occurs um, in Portrait of a Lady. Your head is so crowded with characters and books that you've read and the detail of them and the memory of them. Is it hard for real people to break through into that, <laughs> into that world ever? That's a very personal question. And I suppose the answer is yes. You know, no one has ever read all the books you've read. They've read different ones. So that you're, you really are sometimes wanting to say, no, you see what I'm talking about is, and they say, what are you talking about? I haven't read that. You know, there are a lot of people who haven't read. Mansfield Park of all the, you know, compared to Pride and Prejudice or Persuasion, it isn't one of the best known books, but I find it's one of the richest. And yes, there is, an, there is a sense, the more you read those sort of books, the more you notice in the world. But I'm not sure that helps um, people around you. Mm. And and I think, you know, it's definitely a theme throughout all the books that you've chosen, chosen this sort of 
understated uh, sense in a way. I mean, you know, there's a comparison between Mansfield Park and 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 your next choice, which is Home by Marilyn Robinson. You know, you've written that the novelist takes the risk of making characters seemingly very dull indeed. And I, I you know, with with Home by Marilyn Robinson and indeed Gilead, I remember reading those books and and and. and I'm just thinking, why do I love this? Why am I immersed in it? Because really, if I had to describe it to you, I'd be really hard pushed to to make it sound enticing. Yeah, yeah. There is that sort of sense of yeah. removal. Yeah, I mean, I'm writing a novel at the moment in which there is a, a there's a man who owns a bar in a small town. There's a woman who runs a chip shop in a small town, and there's a woman who works in a in a garage doing 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 the books. You know, and you realize actually this is one of the things the novel has done. It has made it. It has made a sort of democracy, in that the people in a novel don't have to be rich, and they don't have to be the prime minister, and they don't have to inherit a fortune, you know, for the novel to be. I mean, I mean that is that is why the novel has been so important. It it has created a sort of, I suppose, a rich inner life for people who we we might normally associate with that. And I think Home by Marilyn Robinson is a pretty good example of um. I mean, she's called Glory, but she's called Glory in a way because her father loved the Bible. There's nothing glorious about her. She simply has failed in the world. It's 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 an eternal 1950s. Martin Robinson world, no matter what decade, it's an eternal 1950s. It's in between, you know, one war. And she certainly doesn't deal with the 60s. She can't. There's not a rock song in the Grateful Dead in her books are actually love people who went, who went to heaven because they committed no sins. They were the Grateful Dead. But uh, <laughs> um, and, and if there's long hair, well, Glory has long hair, but her brother Jack doesn't. Anyway, she has failed um, in her time away. There's been a sort of pale love affair. And now she comes home to look after her father, who's an old clergyman who's been in an earlier novel by Marilyn Robinson called Gilead. And really almost nothing happens except her brother, Jack, he comes back too. And he's really failed. I mean, he really it looks as though he's been drinking. It looks as though he's been down on his luck. He may have even been in prison. He can't settle in the house. Every time he comes in, he goes out again. No one knows where he goes. And um, she's attempting to restore some sort of order in domestic life. But whatever happens, um, the same thing as happens to Fanny Price because of how much she worries about things, how conscientious she is, how good she is. But her, she does have a desire for something, almost like Fanny does, for something she wants. I suppose she wants love. She wants recognition. She wants her desires to be fulfilled, however small her desires are. Now, the, 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 how this works is it works in real time. It works as you turn the page. You become her, you know, that, 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 that it isn't as though you think, oh, there's this woman in America. Said, no, turn the next page. Oh, has Jack come back yet? And you begin to worry in the same way as she does. And you also, Mar- Marilyn Robinson, I, I think who's, I think she's one of the great novelists working now, that, that, that she has a way of letting, of taking you in to her trust. So you realize she's, that she's going to do nothing weird in this book she's not going to have a big car crash or someone's not going to inherit a fortune it's going to be about the slow days of someone who who you might notice on the street as you wouldn't notice fanny price but in the backgrounds all the time is the idea of jack the brother as much loved and doomed that somehow or other no matter where he's going to go what he's going to do gloria is going to have to oversee something slow and poisonous that's happening to him while her father watches over this 
in this small house. So I think the, the, the great thing the novel has done is it's moved the site of fiction from the palace, for example, in Shakespeare or in um, or, or the forest of Arden in, in, into a very small domestic space where a woman's life is being watched over by a novelist with immense intricate care. So the reader begins to care about her fate as he would once have cared about the fate of someone powerful. She is powerful. Robinson has made her powerful by giving her mind and her imagination and her sensibility so much texture. I'm worried now because having said to you, you know, with your head full of all these characters and all these books, is there room for real people to break through? And you considered that a terribly personal question. But now I'm I'm wondering whether where this interest in these characters who I would say are in many ways very far removed from from you as as a character uh, yourself, where you think it stems from these these quiet, overlooked people, these people sort of or, or do you think that those are actually unifying characteristics of all of us, no matter how we might appear to the to the wider world? Yes, there's a moment where Virginia Woolf in her diary, she notes that she has a friend called Mildred. And I often think about Mildred because she says that she actually said to Mildred, Virginia Woolf said to Mildred, no, Mildred, the problem with you is that you're dull, 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 dull. And I think, ooh, I think I could do something with this Mildred. You know, in, in, in other words, I, I think that 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 the entire, uh, you know, it, 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 a book depends on its style, but if you take something like Ulysses, which, which I easily could have chosen among this, but it just would take us too long to talk about it, is that the, the, Joyce has got the figure of Leopold Bloom. You know, he, he is, um, he's Jewish, he's middle-aged, his wife is having an affair with somebody else. He moves in the city and we watch his mind. And it is that idea of the democratic mind, the democratic novelist of these, of the saying, I will give a richness to this ordinary man that you will not expect. And this somehow will not only enrich your reading experience, but will enrich you. So I suppose what, what I'm talking about is absolutely fundamental in thinking about democracy, in thinking about fiction, and in general thinking about life. And also, you're absolutely right what you said, that all of us are really dull. <laughs> <laughs> we just make an effort, we show off, we, we pretend we've got all sorts of things to say, but actually deep down, we're just sitting there quietly watching things and trying to disguise the fact that we don't really have much interesting to say. I think it's also um, influenced by watching your mum when you were a little boy in Enniscorthy leading this life that, that might have seemed dull, but you imbued with a richness or wanted uh, and continue to want to imbue with a richness, you know, that that's at odds in a way with the, with what might have seemed like the simplicity of it. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's there in A Guest in the Feast and it's there in the novel Nora Webster, the the, the, the idea that there was someone ordinary in an ordinary house, semi-detached, or all the suburbs, the suburbia of a small town even, who, when she went to the library, could pick a book and that book could nourish her spirit in the most extraordinary way. And that book could be, I mean, my, my mother, the soul bellow. I mean, she just, I think she wanted to be with him. You know, there, there, were, there were a few years of her life where she just couldn't believe how good those Soul Bellow books were. And um, 
I, I thought at first it was just a way of annoying me because she was saying how fast moving they were, how smart and modern they were as a way of sort of suggesting that maybe I could try that too. But but later I thought, no, that that she actually, there was, there was a, she loved the sort of sexual politics of those books. So those oversexed men, she just thought it was great. I, mean, I was really just surprised that you thought it was great. But that's the way books go. Uh, that's why a library is a dangerous thing. They're always wanting to close them. Wasn't she a closet Edna O'Brien reader as well? Oh, oh! I was snooping around one day when they were all out, and and upstairs on top of the wardrobe in my parents' bedroom, the one over near the window, were three books. Uh, they were The Country Girls by Edna O'Brien, The Dark by John McGarren, and Couples by John Updike. I, I thought John Updike was another of our Irish writers <laughs> who had disgraced himself in some way by writing about something that no one should write about. But um, oh yeah, those three books were there, and those three books were banned at that time. So so they were they would have been passed around by women, you know, who who felt that they, this banning was ridiculous. And certainly, Edna O'Brien was 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 certainly in those years was 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 uh, treated with immense respect by those who couldn't could had to whisper her name. Yeah. But was there was there an element of shock at finding them at the top of your mother's I, wardrobe? You know, I I really wasn't sure what they were, other than ooh, these these are here, so that, so so that, <laughs> these must be very interesting indeed. Well, I don't know how to segue back to Marilyn Robinson from this <laughs> because because the thing I wanted to talk to you about was the thing that you explore in uh, a guest at the feast, which which was the, the way in which she writes about religion and and I know that you, you're conflicted by it, which is what makes the essay uh, so brilliant to read because it's like watching you have an argument with yourself. But but you've said that she takes great risks in, in placing religious belief at the very centre of a character's being. And I, I suppose that was what first struck me reading her books was 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 that I was lured in by something that I thought I would be repulsed by. I think it's important that she's a Protestant or she's a Calvinist, because if she was a Catholic, it's a real problem, because can you send your character to Lourdes and can they beget it and can they have a miracle happen? And can you do that in a novel? And the answer is probably no. Probably don't please don't try a miracle in your novel. But because they're Protestants, they're really they, they really are involved in the, in the interpretation of the good book. There's one area, however, that fascinates me, which is so far away from me, and I think from you, that even us talking about it is, is crazy. The idea of predestination. Now, predestination is that before even you're born, or just as you're born, it is already decided whether you're saved or whether you're not saved. So the damned are walking the streets. There's nothing you can do. doesn't matter what sins you commit or how good you are. You are predestined to be damned. Now, a novelist trying to deal with this idea, it's a hard business because the whole point of fiction is you have to give characters autonomy. You have to allow them to surprise you. They, they can live in the world any way they want at, uh, up to a certain point in a novel. But Jack, in these Four novels she's written now in um, Gilead, Home, Lila and Jack. These are the four novels in which Jack appears. There is a sense, and he does ask the question at one stage to his father's friend, can I ask you something that's pressing on my mind? Could I be predestined? Could it be that I have, I am not going to be among the saved and I never had a chance to be? And of course, they can't answer it to him because it's such a cruel idea. But the idea that someone is worrying in their lives about this, as people must be in within Calvinism. Well, it's an extraordinarily dramatic idea. 
It's interesting, though, that, that that whole thing about predestination, isn't it? Because in some ways, each of the main characters in the three books we've talked about so far uh, are, are battling against what you could describe as predestiny, and they don't really escape it, do they? So yeah. uh, are you a believer in, in the fact that that we're here, we're, we're, we're lumped with whatever experiences we, we kind of go through, probably up to about the age of 12, and then after that, there's very little chance to escape ourselves or become something other than what we already are. No, I know I know I know what you're talking about, but the purpose of the novel is to evade that and to say, yes, but watch what she did on a given day. Watch where the sunlight was coming from. Watch what was in the kitchen. Watch what a certain moment, a certain phrase somebody used. Watch the room watch the light so that you're dealing, I suppose, with the glory of each of a given day and, and the way the drama can come from the from the difference between an overall idea and a given moment. I suppose that's what's in all three books, the, the idea that, that 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 you have this very limited figure of Fanny Price and then the novel delimits her. It gives her a set of infinite possibilities to actually thrive and that, and that eventually she will be noticed. And it, it also means that with glory and home, the reader gets to know someone who's a very complex, interesting and ambiguous figure. And it isn't as though there's a single dullness in, in not giving characters autonomy. In a way, every sentence is a form of autonomy because they notice the world in a new, rich way. And I suppose that's the point here, that these three novelists have managed to overcome the temptation of being single in the way of judging character, of being predetermined, of not giving characters autonomy. And then you watch them opening their characters up to the world and allowing the given day, the actual way in which a morning happens, an extraordinary amount of, um, I suppose, felt life, of, of a sense of deep and complex feeling. That's the point, I think. Are we going to have to throw all of these nice meaty themes that we've been digging into here that link all those books so beautifully together in a fabulous narrative fashion? Are we going to have to throw all of it out the window when we go to Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin, which you've described as the book uh, you've read more than once, so you'll definitely have plenty to say about it. No, this again is a very limited world. And it's a world in which they're really not going to be, you know, people are not going to inherit money or... They're not going to thrive in some way, but but you're it obsessed is, um, with the inheriting money thing. Now you've said that about well, three or four well, times. Just, well, if you think Why? about Isabel, you know, if you think about Henry James, I mean, Isabel Archer. You know, the whole point of, of of that book is that she inherits money, and therefore she's able to do all the things she's doing. So it's 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 a big. I mean, Dorothea, you know, in Middlemarch, the whole business of Casabon's will. What's he doing with the will? And so, so there's so many of the 19th century novels that really, you know, people's last will and testament, Middlemarch, the whole idea of, of who's going to inherit um, money from their uncle. But um, so Go Tell It on the Mountain, I think, is a much more poetic book where Baldwin is attempting to explore something which, which Barack Obama will also have to explore, which is what it means to be religious in African-American world. What that Barack Obama talked about that one hour or two hours on a Sunday morning being a time when Americans are at their most separate, that the black church is so closed to the outside world 
its structures and dramas are, are, are so internalized and, and, and they're, they're one way for the community to sort of redeem itself, to live outside time, to live outside politics, to live outside repression or oppression, that somehow the whole sort of lifting of the spirit, the openness to the language of prayer, which is, which is a language that has not really been used in the other three books. But this time around, the actual possibility in a novel of, of, of naming the prayer and letting the words of the prayer rise up. And, and there is also in the book, I suppose, a, a sense that really mattered to Baldwin of how powerless fatherhood became in this world. That fathers were seen as, as loud and broken men who, who were capable of lashing out, but were also immensely weak figures compared to the women who have an extraordinary sort of strength. And in this world, this boy um, with deep religious feelings begins to explore what, what, what it means uh, to be, I suppose, close to God and also living in Harlem. You know, so close to Harlem, so far from heaven. And yet somehow on a Sunday morning, Harlem becomes heaven. And Baldwin manages this, I think, without irony. He, he actually finds a prose style that, 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 that allows this to... I suppose, ha not just happen, but matter, seem normal and then seem immensely elevated and uplifted. It, it, he's looking back at his own world, not fondly or nostalgically, because, of course, all the tensions are given to this child, the tension between heaven and earth, between father and mother, between his own way of noticing the world and the way with the hardness of the world and his own sort of softness. So all those things are in the novel, dramatized, without the novel seeming to be nostalgic or even more important, seeming to be a document for white people so, so they will know about black people. And this is one of the problems Baldwin always had, that he was somehow or other meant to be a sort of chronicler of a world that was otherwise hidden from the world of downtown. He was telling downtown about uptown. And sometimes he really got tired of doing, doing this. His next novel will be set among white people, gay people in Paris. Um, it will be Giovanni's Room. But, but this first book has a delicacy and a sort of beauty and a way of exploring not just childhood, but childhood in a very a, a sort of a sense of an isolated community and the way in which a child watches and notices. So I'm back with the idea of watching and noticing. And, and out of intense watching and noticing, which is what the novelist must do as much as the character. So that it, it we're happening, it's happening in Fanny Price, it's happening in Glory, in Marilyn Robinson's novel Home, but it's happening here again that, that, that we're dealing with a very delicate consciousness, the whole idea of watching, noticing, a sort of glittering watchfulness. Mm. Uh, also, perhaps less prosaically, there's, there's this real conflict that he has between, because this is a, a, a pretty biographical, autobiographical novel isn't it and and that conflict he has between uh, his deep immersion in in the church of his childhood you know he's a he's a preacher at the age of 13 or 14 isn't he into it and then you know his sexuality his emerging sexuality and 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 how difficult that made being either thing for him yes that it's there in go tell it on the mountain if you go looking for it that you're actually talking about at the growth of a homosexual artist in Harlem. I haven't 
looked at the first draft of the book, which I believe is in Yale in the library. And I intend to do that very soon because I think there are things that were removed from the book, just not wanting to make that too explicit. But but it is there. It, it, is, it is there in his relationship to other young men of his kind in the book, that, that their connection with each other is not simply as friends. That it, isn't, it isn't as though they play football on the streets together. It is a something else they want from each other, which the reader realizes is actually homosexuality. Why, why do you think that you've written so much about the experiences of women and, and delve so deeply into the kind of psyches and the world of women? You, know, you talked at the beginning about how women talk and how it was so much more interesting a place to be. But you haven't focused in that same way on homosexuality and on, on homosexual men. I mean, you have in terms of writing about writers who who were or who we believe were homosexual, but, but, but not uh, in terms of the very real quiet people that you explore in all your other novels uh, well, I think I actually do you're, you're not being fair I have written um, The Blackwater Lightship I have written The yeah, Story sorry, of the yeah, Night yes. I, mean, I mean I have an orphan child called The Story of the Night I think every novelist has one the novel that no one has read or that you always think no one has read I have a novel called The Story I of the Night I haven't read The which, Story which, of the Night no, 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 one, no one has read it <laughs> honestly no one has read it I have two friends and they haven't even read it <laughs> and uh, so um you know, I have done that in those two books and um, there must be one other. Oh, yes. In in the House of Names, certainly there's a, there's a lot of stuff about Orestes um, and his um, homosexuality. So I'm going to do more, by the way. It's just, you know, watch this space because I have a big gay novel in my head and I've written the first sort of two chapters or something. I'll be doing more soon. I managed to elicit that nugget from you by feigning ignorance about your previous gay characters. Um, but you do seem uh, um, enormously preoccupied with the dynamics and the differences between the masculine and the feminine, between men and women, and, and also a sense of place, which we haven't really talked about enough, maybe, so far. Uh, but all of those come to play in Foster by Claire Keegan. I think that opening description of hers when uh, it, it, it's really a novella, isn't it? And that description of the, the two men, the father who's dropping off his daughter and the foster father he's dropping her to. And the way they stand outside that house and talk about absolutely nothing for quite a protracted period of time is just one of the most genius pieces of writing I've read. I'm from there, you know, I mean, myself and Claire Keegan are more or less from the same hinterland. And, and therefore, I would be able to tell her, Claire, you got that line wrong. They, people don't say this, they say that. But her ear is so perfect. And it's it's much better than mine. So that I'm listening sometimes say, oh, my God, I didn't realize that phrase is such a good phrase to use. It's absolutely from that year, that particular place, that particular person. And it's so apt so that, um, I mean, I was I did a, um, you know, she, she has this beautiful book that's been out recently called Small Things Like These. And I was doing this interview with her. And instead of asking her about the big subjects of the book, I asked her about the local. Claire, isn't it true that New Ross, where you presented this book, is, isn't like it isn't really in Wexford. It's more like it's sort of in between Wexford and Waterford. And I realized that Claire was becoming quite, in, quite engaged because, yes, these are the sort of questions that she asks. If I put in, a, she has someone in New Ross having an Enniscorthy accent. And I said, but that's absolutely right. People in New Ross, for a New Ross ear, there is an Enniscorthy sound. 
And, but there were, we had such a good time because, um, you know, it, it isn't as though this using of the local makes the novel provincial. Because, of course, small things like these was shortest with the Booker Prize. You have no idea in America how, how much it matters to people. But, it, but the idea of beginning in the local, like Henry James beginning Portrait of a Lady in his grandmother's actual house in Albany, using that specific house. Now we're in this, this idea of if you stick to the truth, just to the truth of naming a town, it's not any town, it's specifically this town in this year, that you will get something very rich from that. And it will not be provincial. It will not be parochial. It will be right. And um, so Foster begins with that idea that the two men, as you say, are talking in this very particular way. It's not exactly Beckett, but it is sort of pointless. It's oddly comic, but it's also they're trying to be both polite and distant. I mean, it's the story of a young girl who's being moved from her big family, you know, who have no money and they're stuck. This is in North County Wexford, down to a place where there are relatives who have no children and she's going to be the only child in the house. And this means that she's going to be treated in a different way or she's going to have her own room, the way food, the, the amount of noticing of labels and types of food and how bread and butter and different types of jam and all that and how the day is spent. And of course, once more, we're back with Portrait of a Lady because we're back with the idea that a novel is really good at holding a secret. The young girl doesn't know something. And the reader doesn't know it either. The reader guesses in the same way as the young girl does, in the same way as Isabel Archer begins to guess what Madame Merle is doing in her life in the same moment as the reader does. So you're involved in this strange experience where it's not just you reading, it's you reading the character. And so the both of you are reading the moment. And that's a very powerful idea. It depends on a secret. There must be a secret for it not to be known, and then it's slowly to be revealed. But 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 I think it, her, her book, I don't know what a novella is, and I'm waiting for someone to tell me. But in her book, the, 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 the shorter form allows for a sort of poetry to happen. By poetry, I mean that she's constantly trying to find an image that resonates, that, that it, the image in itself is almost enough. For example, um, where the post box is, or the exact, or the going into the town to get clothes for her, you know, new clothes. Mm. That scene, the every, the fabric, the whole way the woman looks at her and talks to her, her wanting the clothes, but her not wanting the attention. Her, her, it isn't that she's shy because Claire Keegan won't use a word as simple as shy. She'll show her being just not wanting to be in light, but also wanting to be there as well, wanting to be approved of, wanting everything to be good, but she'd be very good at going silent. That idea of Fanny Price in Mansfield Park going silent, Glory going silent. It isn't that she uses silence as a weapon. She's That, that would be such an easy thing to say, and it's just not true. She doesn't use anything as a weapon. She doesn't have any defences like that, in the same way as Isabel Archer doesn't. So, so it, it isn't a modern retelling of Portrait of a Lady. But it uses some of the same systems around secrecy, concealment, and revelation. But but more than that, because of its form, which is the shorter form, it, it has a poetic thing where just a piece of... Uh, there was a thing, I don't know if you had it, called Sandwich Spread, 
Oh yes, delicious. I mean, it was. And, uh, I don't, <laughs> Looked like someone called, had been sick on your toast. Yes. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> and another thing called chicken and ham paste, which oh, no, was an early version of pat. It was an early version of pate, you know. But but all that business of um, what is on a kitchen table, Claire has a way of being able to make that do as much work as an object on a table in Vermeer, where there will, there will be a glow of things. She's also really good sometimes at not doing that. I mean, her tact and her judgment. So uh, this this is a it's a hundred pages. Yeah, you but you you clearly absolutely uh, relish it, and yet you've chosen it as uh, the book when no one can see what I'm reading. I'll read. So it, are you being covert because it's a novella, and people might think, why is Colin Tobin yes. in a novella? Yes, and it also it's about a young girl in provincial Ireland. And you know, if you're like if you're, if if you're going somewhere and you really want to meet nice, fashionable people, you know, who you can hang out with, and um, so what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading Boster by Claire King, and it's so great because they're not reading it. You know, you feel sometimes this this is a private world of mine, and then you realize so many people that you, like this book, Foster, has become such a an important book for so many people who are not Irish, who've never been in Wexford, and also more significantly, who've never been a young girl. <laughs> so it's um it's that whole idea that with with it isn't that within each of us there's a young girl trying to get out. It is as though this, this book is so well written, so well dramatized, so well described that you inhabit someone who is very far away from you, which is the whole point of fiction. You mentioned Go Tell It on the Mountain with James Baldwin basically writing about uh, downtown for uptown folk, as it were, and that being uh, perhaps a, a frustration for him or conflict for him. But uh, do you ever feel that yourself? Because you are, you know, this revered, uh, you know, master of literature. Um, and 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 yet your meditation uh, not all the time, but very, very often, is back in that same town, is back in that place uh, that you've never really managed to escape from. Is that because you're not trying hard enough? No, I haven't managed to escape from it at all. I'm still, I could still take you back. And it's the the place, if I was, if we said 1965 on a certain street corner in Enniscorthy, I'm still there in some way, trying to work out what's going on. (laughs) And um I, I suppose um, you learn to trust that. I remember someone saying to me in England, and um, someone very grand saying to me, oh, about some critic, oh, well, he would like you, wouldn't he? I said, well, why would he like me, wouldn't he? And the answer was, well, you know, you're regional. I said, oh, I'm what? Hold on a moment. A region, <laughs> of, a region of where? And, uh, you know, he was so sorry. I mean, he had to backtrack. He really it was awful. And, uh, but I suppose it is a whole idea that we're, that we, I was brought up in a world that was so dominated by Martin Amos and by how smart he was, how cosmopolitan he was, how globalized, how transatlantic, those, those, those characters of his and his descriptions of mo- all the modern things. And then, uh, you know, Will Self, did, did the same thing. So there were so many male authors, Don DeLillo, who were re- inhabiting the full technology of now. And I just couldn't, I mean, I just didn't know anything about any of this. I was I was helpless in the face of London, New York, uh, transatlantic flight, gadgets, um, whole new ways of thinking and feeling. 
So <laughs> for me, it began as a sort of utter failure to be, you know, um, in the room. <laughs> to, you know, there, I, I mean, I'm mentioning the names of three writers, but there, but there are so many others who um, I felt were so smart and so urban and so modern. And I just was just this, this locked into this provincial town. And all I could do was make the best of it. Like, Martin Amos's Money. I had, I had a wonderful book. I mean, it's a wonderful book, but it made me feel small. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, it really did. You could just imagine, you know, I just had no idea how how you would get to that level of knowledge about all these things that are in the world. So I just had to make do with what, what I had, which was a small town. Just finally then, uh, will your big gay novel be set in Enniscorthy? How are you going yeah. to bring those two? Yeah, words oh yeah, together? absolutely, absolutely. It's a big effort to to get the world of my aunts, of of all that sort of, um, you know, people in grey light. With the, there's a possibility of drizzle being the nearest to excitement, as it might drizzle later on, being the nearest to excitement with the with the with the big world of gay life and uh, gay excitement and um, gay possibility. I'm looking forward to that one, I have to tell I'm you. I'm looking forward to finishing it. I haven't even started it, God's sake. <laughs> Colin Tabreen, it's been absolutely fantastic. It's been like a masterclass in literature, quite frankly. I envy your students at Columbia. Uh, it has been like a masterclass in literature. But just, you know, to find all of those themes that all connect and tie together and, and layer under each other in these five incredibly disparate seeming books has been just a real instruction in, in how to read. And uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. And learned a lot and I'm very grateful. Thank you very much, Mary. It was really great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app.